All right, welcome back to Patriots of the Core podcast. I'm Thad Forster, and I've got with me today for episode number 90, Mr. Troy By out of Madison, Alabama. Troy, thanks for joining me. Man, it's a pleasure to be here, Thad, and uh, happy to hear I'm episode 90. That's yeah, awesome. it's it, it's hard to believe. And so for those of you, I guess for all the listeners, if you enjoy what you hear today or what you have heard in any of the nine, the 89 previous episodes Please go and rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast. And I'm not sure, does Google Podcast allow ratings too? Troy, do you know? You know, I, I don't know. It's a great question. I don't think it does yet, but I don't go and, and look at all those. Um, but I do know the ratings are important. And you know, Apple Podcast and, and Spotify, are, aren't they, Troy, the big dogs? Yeah, I agree. Uh, there's a lot of them out there, but I think Spotify, Apple, maybe Google a third place as far mm-hmm. as what's most popular. So please go and rate the podcast and Patriots of the Core. You can just go ahead and just go all the way to the right, five stars. It's that easy. And then preferably a review as well. Uh, so I mention that every once in a while on my on my episodes. I don't try to beat you over the head with it. And after you hear Troy today, I think you'll want to go hear his podcast and, and rate his as well called uh, our town podcast so troy how's your day been uh good day it's been a busy week uh for my you know regular employment with mantech uh, we had a big ribbon cutting this past weekend and my my job principally has helped has been to kind of reestablish our market presence here in huntsville um so uh, it's it was a good day as far as just getting a little uh, little relaxation if you will we had a really busy weekend and so just getting back into the swing of things and it's just fun to set up a new office and and uh bring in new furniture and you know new security systems and things like that so uh it was a really good day you have lived most of your life in virginia the dc area right yes and tell me about how you got into in your profession, how you got into it, why you wanted to get into the defense industry or industry supporting that that area, and then why you said last year, basically, I'm moving to Huntsville. I started, I was one of those, I worked my way through college, and it was in the late 90s, and so I figured that I wanted to get into something computer-related. You know, that it seems weird to say that now, and that this was... I can't believe it's been 25 years plus. And so that was kind of the first step. I wanted to do something in IT and computer related, and I wasn't really sure what that meant. And then I worked for, I was working for a consulting company. And on day one or or day two, they had a nice orientation program. The vice president that managed the intelligence community business came in and um, gave a briefing, if you will, on on you know the different uh, customers that they supported in that business unit, and just gave an overview of kind of what it was like to support you know the intelligence community. And this was prior to 9/11, but but just barely. It was only I would think maybe four or five months before 9/11, and it just resonated with me. I felt like. Um, what I was doing was, was interesting. I was working for like general service administration, state department. But when I heard this guy kind of brief on, you know, working for a lot of those three letter agencies and then even related to the defense side, um, I wanted to, I wanted to figure out how I could be a part of that. So then 9-11 happened and I, 
I ran into that guy in the hallway at, you know, I think on the way to the restroom. And I asked, how do I get a clearance? And um, the government was pouring tons of money into clearing people. And so it was kind of right place at the right time. I got my full scope, you know, top secret SCI full scope poly within three months. And were you so still I didn't in college? Really, um, yeah, I was still uh, yeah, I was still like uh, going through my undergrad and I was like just finishing up. So I was working full time. I was going to I was going to school full time and I was working full time. Um, and I I really didn't know enough. I didn't. It's not like I had a plan. I didn't have anybody in my family that that uh, that was alive, that was still that had served in the military or had even served as a government employee or a contractor in the intelligence community. I was just really naively just felt like it was something I wanted to do. And before you knew it, I was uh, I was working uh, in the intelligence community for for certain customers I can't really talk about. But uh, it was great. And I just kind of I just enjoyed every uh, job and, and responsibility that I had. And I kind of just built up my career um, in that industry. You will. There's a lot to be said for just learning how that government agency does business. And you kind of follow some of their government leaders around as they as they change you know, their job assignments and get asked to do different things. And so I was uh, with that customer for 20 years, just working for different companies, working on on different um, areas of, of their business uh, from a kind of a technology perspective. And then the Huntsville opportunity was is primarily driven by the FBI, who the highest number I've seen is 6000 jobs are supposed to move to the on the arsenal where they've built a north and south campus. And so the line of work that I'm in and kind of a cybersecurity front, um, my past matches up really well with the stuff that the um, FBI will be running down here in Huntsville. And so I, again, kind of blindly just felt it was the right thing for me to do and and take this uh, risk um, and ask my company to send me down. Let me be that representative that's going to come down for, for Mantech and to and try to uh, win some of this work. So that's it's a tough way to summarize, like, you know, 21 years of my career. But <laughs> in a nutshell, that's kind of how I got here. Did you look at the military at any point? I know you've, you've seemed to have always been patriotic and then. What effect did 9-11 have on you? I don't think um, it, it wasn't that I didn't want to go in the military. Uh, I did serve a church mission like you did, and I felt like I wanted to do that uh, as kind of a, as an initial primary goal. And then I got home for my mission and I got married. And so uh, I just kind of figured that ship had sailed as far as looking into uh, a career in the military. And I just didn't. I didn't know enough to ask questions on on what kind of career path. I think it was just so big to me. I, I wouldn't have even known where to start. I've joked around that I remember when the recruiters would come to like our cafeteria in high school. And at that time, I, I don't know if I could have chosen which branch of the military I would have gone into. And, it's, and to this day, if I if a recruiter came in here from all of the major branches, I'm not sure if I could make that decision because um, I value all of them. I've never. Uh, you know, held one or higher than the other, um, you know, in esteem or regard. But but just I think I just wanted to give back to my country 
Um, and I just felt like with my circumstance, the best I could do was let me work for a, a contracting company and just insert myself into and truly be on mission focused. All of my career has been focused heavily, heavily on very specific mission sets um, and operations, if you will, uh, kind of from a, an IT perspective where we are supporting the warfighter or supporting the an asset overseas or whatever it may be. So that that always just walking across the seal of of any of the of the intelligence community agencies just brought me a tremendous amount of of patriotism. Mm-hmm. So you moved here in December of 2021. Correct. You knew very few people. You and I hadn't seen each other since 97 and you quickly started Our Town podcast. And why did you do that? Yeah, I had I had origin about 10 years ago before the term podcast was is as popular as it is now. I had my own live stream uh, business. Uh, it was basically around high school sports. And I took a lot of pride in, in building that up. It, it was a hobby that never really became a viable business because um, that that gets into just when you're trying to do something for high school sports and, you know, the state of Virginia in this case or the regions throughout Virginia, um, it can get a little political and it's just it's just difficult because, you know, it's it's involving students and it's involving, you know, any success I have takes away from the success the school might have in in selling tickets to a game and, and selling hot dogs and hot chocolate, and things like that to the to those that would normally come to a game. Um, so it was it was a lot of fun. It was literally a I built that up from single microphone and a digital recorder from the first time I did a game to four cameras, you know, five televisions that we're looking at. I probably had eight people on my staff. We were doing instant replay, um, just a full on as if you were watching a college football game. That was my goal. My goal was if you were sitting like in a sports bar like you would today and there's 70 TVs and if they showed a like my high school football game, I wanted it to be as professionally produced as possible so that, you know, people would be like, wow, I can't believe I'm watching a high school game that's just produced by a dad, right? A dad of kids who go to that high school. Yeah, with four and, kids and a, a full-time yeah. job, right? Yeah, and so it was it was very labor-intensive. And so anyway, um, and I did some coaches' shows, which would now you would just consider a podcast, right? Those My, my thing was I liked live. I have – I like to put myself under stress and pressure – and I like to um, prove that I can do something. And so my thing back then, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, was live sports, um, just live production. And then um, so then I would also do coaches shows that I would record and 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 post those as an audio version, uh, you know, in, t- in anticipation of a game to do research on and get you know information from the coach that I would u- then use in the play by play broadcast. So and then I sold that in 2016. And so here we are seven, you know, six, seven years later, and I've just had this itch. I wanted to get back into I just enjoy media production, just like you you know, have a podcast and you're at episode 90. I enjoy building up uh, a, a little company or, or a concept and, and trying to, you know, get it to getting some traction and 
and figure out the market. And, um, and so that coincided with just me for once, the first time in my life, also kind of having to start over professionally. Yes, I stayed with my company as I moved down here. But as you just said, the only person I knew that lived in Alabama was Thad Forrester. And so for me, I thought, okay, in addition to whatever I might do as part of my job and, and meeting people and, and getting to be known in the community, um, what what can I do to kind of in, intensify that effort and quicken the my ability to um, to be known in the community that I that would ultimately just help me as an individual, help my family and and help me within you know my position at the company. And so I purposely chose our town to represent that I have adopted this as my new hometown. So it's it's my town just as much as your town. It's our town. And um, and that's the thing I enjoy is, you know, naming a company and branding it and, and creating a logo. And now we're at episode 13 and I'm doing it every single week. And, yeah, it's just I'm kind of one of those people where all kind of I look for a win, win, win in many different situations. And so for me, it's it's being able to renew my interest and I built a studio in my house and I had to re you know rebuy all of the equipment that I probably would have used before plus I'm using lights and that's interesting to me I just I, I enjoy the challenge of of building a set and um and now podcasting is so easy it's just so easy to um there's so many different ways right that the, the way we're doing it right now and there's probably 10 to 12 different ways that you could you could go about producing a podcast and mm-hmm. and ultimately for free, right? So it's just kind of your time and your effort. So that was nice to have the barriers of entry and the the uh, of startup that that have been completely removed, that allow you to to be uh, have a lot more freedom, right, in exploring something like creating a podcast. Um, so I hope that makes sense. But you know, it's it's multifaceted. But at the end of the day, it was, and it's just I've been here six months, and I think it's working. Is I just want. To, you know, throw, I'm, I'm excited about being here. My family's excited. And it's just an extension of that excitement to just throw my arms around this town and, and just embrace how much I love the fact that we've moved to Alabama. What's been one of the most rewarding experiences you've had related to the podcast and one of the uh, negative one with a guest or you know, the experience? I think I've mentioned this to just about every guest, but I... I think genuinely, and you included, every guest I've had on the program is happy in their current situation in life. They life they love their job, and and they're just they're full of joy. I didn't necessarily see that when I was in in the D.C. area. I came across a lot of people where maybe they were second guessing their career choices or just or otherwise just burdened and and stressed out or, or something where um, that's just been a real joy for me is to, to talk to people that are that are just thriving, you know, in their in their career or with their family or, or otherwise just have ton, nothing good to say about Huntsville. Yes, it's now ranked number one, according to the U.S. News and World Report, right? The best place to live. Mm-hmm. And it just seems to be that's just personified in, in um, each of the guests. 
And uh, I don't know for a negative and everyone has been, I think, genuinely excited to kind of show up and to be interviewed. And, you know, it's it's always interesting because I'm meeting them for the first time. Um, but and I don't I don't think I can think of a negative. Um, the negative is probably maybe we go too long. <laughs> has anybody, <laughs> you know? though, said, no, I'm not interested yet? No, no, not yet. Yeah. I, I've have I've had one guest that I, I think he's just too busy with what he's got going on. I'm. There's a part of me that would kind of like to do it where it's very tied to current events, you know, like just like that's what the news is there for. Right. Yeah. Like something happens at three o'clock. Well, it's going to be on the six o'clock news. Um, and every now and then I, I got lucky in episode eight when I interviewed Chad Emerson, who's the CEO of downtown Huntsville. It just so happened that and I had him scheduled for about six weeks to come on the program. And on Monday of, of that week, or maybe it was Tuesday of that week, is when the new U.S. News and World Report came out that we were number one. And I was going to interview him the very next morning. So that was like perfect timing. And um, that's kind of something I would love to continue to hopefully have where we talk about something very topical with a particular guest. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's not always going to be the case. So, no, I haven't had anybody say no. There is somebody I would really love to talk to that uh, runs a business in Huntsville, but I honestly think that they just have way too much in their schedule, and then they look at where does coming onto my program fit into their priority. Probably pretty low. <laughs> what possessed you a few weeks ago to join us for the JAG 28 walk and to walk 28 continuous miles? Because you, you put yourself through it. I was very impressed, but why did you even do that? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know my brother. No, but, you know, I, I did it first for you. I mean, um, you're someone that was, you know, a, a very special part of my life. And we were doing something very, you know, um, special to us when we served our, our missions. Um, you know, that's something that's that uh, is an, a huge part of my life and has taught me. I've learned I learned so much from that experience. And so any opportunity to reconnect with someone. So moving to, you know, you have every intention, I think, to keep in touch with people that you went to high school with or college. But it just gets so difficult. And I, I look at the number of friends that I had that I just I and I'm not able to keep in contact with them because life gets busy and it's just not you know, it's it's somewhat impossible, right, to to keep in touch with every person that um that you that you could. And so part of it I think is just, you know, you get to that that stage of life where like, man, it's it's great that someone like Thad Forrester's coming back into my life and, you know, I wanna I c I wanna do what I can in the fact that he only lives fifteen miles from me. Um and I know I never met your brother. But I I know what ultimate sacrifice he gave and I know what the you know, how hard that must be on your family. I can't I can't empathize, but I can sympathize. And, um, you know, I like to do hard things. You know, selfishly, I wanted to put my body through a, a rigorous test like that to see how I would fare. And, um, you know, kind of checked all those boxes. But really, it's just just respect for the Forrester family and what can I, even though I didn't know Mark and I haven't seen you in a long time and you, you sometimes feel bad when you find out about something years after it happened. 
But, you know, so for me now, it's like, okay, what, what can I do? What little bit can I do to, um, you know, to kind of uh, give back to the Forster family or just, you know, provide some of that extra love and support to you all? And I certainly appreciated it. That's, that's a unique time to spend a day, you know, with people. And I, I don't ever want to make people feel obligated to do it. Uh, a lot of people say they'll do it and very few end up, you know, that way. And, and I'm, and I don't, I've never wanted to make people feel put on the spot, but you know, you said I'm coming and I was glad that you did. And I know you were in a lot of pain. You had some blisters and you, you, you pushed through it. You know, we walked by our vehicles at about mile, was it about 20 or 22, yeah, something like that? 21 or something, yeah. And, you know, you could have stopped. <laughs> we all could have, right? And, and and nobody did. But then at the end, after we got finished the 28 miles, we, we did memorial push-ups. What were you thinking at that point? I was excited it didn't involve using our feet. <laughs> so I, I was more than happy to do, we could have done 100 push-ups. I would have been fine with that. <laughs> I was worried a little bit that my feet wouldn't be okay just getting into the push-up position, you know, but, uh, but no, that was easy. That was the easy part. Okay. And you know what? It's like, you know, I guess it's a little bit, I think we joked around about this and I have had, you know, my wife has had four children and it's a very painful, you know, experience for any woman to give birth, but somehow you forget those feelings and then you do it again. <laughs> so like, I just remember thinking I even that night, I couldn't wait to do it again the next year and just be smarter about taking care of my feet and having better equipment. And just, you know, I genuinely was excited, even though I was in terrible pain and bleeding and, you know, would be picking skin off my feet for days. Yes. Growing up for you, I know your dad had a a serious injury and your mom did too sometime shortly thereafter. I mean, what was your life like growing up in your family? Cause I'm, I'm just curious how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I, um, so I, I never was close to my dad. They both, they, they divorced shortly after I was born. I'll try to be very succinct in, in explaining this. I was the, I'm the youngest of, of my dad's three kids. They, they got divorced and then they both were remarried. Uh, my dad had another child with his second wife. And then my mom had three more children with her second husband. And when I was six, we got a phone call um, that my father had been in a motorcycle accident, in like a dirt bike accident in the mountains of Utah. He was a coal miner, uh, really good mechanic, but, you know, just kind of a poor, you know, uh, didn't make a lot of money, but just very generous with his time and, um, you know, uh, happy-go-lucky guy and went on like a church camp out and they went riding dirt bikes and he got thrown from his bike and um, his his head injury was significant, but what was even more significant was that it took a long time for medical help to get there, uh, 45 minutes to an hour. And so he lost a lot of oxygen to his brain and um, but, you know, it wasn't that I was not, ups- I was only six and I had never really lived with them and known them. Um, so it didn't uh, necessarily impact me too much, but then the following year, so at this point now we're in the, in the summer of 1983, 
my sister at the, my youngest sister was only 10 days old and we got on a plane. We lived in Utah and we flew out to Virginia to, to visit my mom's parents. And a few, I think we were only there for about three days. And my mom, my stepdad, my older brother, and my older sister went down to Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson, and were touring the grounds there. And a tree limb fell and, and hit my mom on the head. And That is just so bizarre. Yeah. And the, the fortunate thing for her was that you're, at, you're right next to the University of Virginia Hospital. Um, so she was in surgery within, you know, seconds she's touring and there's people all around, of course. And, you know, this thing happens and she was surrounded by first aid and, and other care and off to into surgery. So she, so they basically have the, the same injury. Um, it, so again, I'm seven years old. There was a circumstance with my stepfather where my grandfather removed him, you know, from the home and, and a, and, and ultimately they, they got divorced, but my mom was in a coma for a long time, probably 11 weeks or so. And so six kids were now living with my grandparents, um, in Virginia. So I was one that just clung to my grandparents. Um, I loved them. I loved being around them. But it's very interesting where each each of the kids has, you know, we've all been affected by it where, you know, in the absence of and really my younger siblings got the the, the raw deal because they don't have any memory really of being raised by their mother or their father. I at least had three years where I, I, I got to know my mom the way she was before her accident. And I, I got to live, you know, with my stepfather and my my brother and sister in Utah, and, and we loved it. We we had a great time as kids. Um, you know, this was a time where you just ride your bike forever, and you know, you could be outdoors and just kind of check in, you know, here and there. Um, but we had a really great time. But it was very different uh, after that. We none of us we were never able to all live together again because uh, my mom they. After about three years of intense therapy and, and rehab and all that stuff, my grandparents felt it would be important for her to have a, a house and at least feel like she was making progress and, and could live on her own. But she never she was never going to be able to live independently. There was always a heavy reliance on aunts and uncles and grandma and grandpa to kind of just check in and, and help her pay her bills or, or whatever it may be house repairs. But I, me and one of my younger brothers actually um, moved with her to a town about 20 miles West of, of McLean. It's in Herndon, which is basically where Dulles airport is. If anyone's ever flown into Virginia. Um, and so I lived with her from basically fifth grade all the way through when I graduated. But my, Many of my siblings um, stayed in McLean with my grandparents. I had a brother that moved out and lived with a friend. Um, so it was very, you know, from a family perspective, um, we were, you know, we're just not that close because we really don't know each other and we never really spent a lot of time together as siblings. Mm -hmm. um, and I was the the man of the house, if you will, for, for helping my mom in Herndon. And, and I had my younger brother there. Um, and we, my mom didn't know how to cook. 
So we ate every meal we had was fast food or it was from something she could put in the microwave. Did she know how to cook before? I mean, was this an injury issue? Yeah. So when you have traumatic brain injury, what happens is you're going to lose a lot of those motor skills and, uh, and she just didn't know how to cook anymore. And you lose dexterity and just you lose the ability to do lots of fine motor skills. And you also lose um, you're going to have perfect memory up until a point in your life. So she has perfect memory until 1968. She has no memory from 1968 to 1983. It's gone. Delete. And then everything from 1983 to present is just short term. Some things are very short term. Hmm. Some things she will remember. And there's a lot of things she will she won't even remember. She just told you five seconds ago. Um, and that's the same way with my dad. You know, she still feels like it's 1963 and that's the way life should be. And she has a really hard time with the advances, that, you know, that we have now in society and technology and stuff. It's really hard for her. Did you ever feel gypped? Did you ever feel mad? Like, hey, man, I never had. I didn't have this. I, I don't know. Did you have people to go talk to for advice? Did you have some fatherly figures or more motherly figures that you could lean on at times? Yeah. Um, it was just more, I think, more support. I mean, I clung to my aunts and my uncles and and my grandparents, and I certainly probably looked at all of my coaches, whether it was you know a baseball coach or a football coach. I would look for anyone that could be a good father figure. Um, and so going, even going to school or a motherly figure, I, I certainly sought more in a relationship with a teacher than just a teacher. You know, I would just observe and, you know, and try to see what kind of person they would, um, they are or, um, and, and try to emulate and, or, and look up to them and say, okay, yeah, in the absence of a mother or father, when I become a mother or father and an adult, you know, they, they live their life in such a way that that's a, that's a good example for me. And so, yeah, I really relied heavily on what I observed in the community or at church or at school for uh, role models. Um, not a lot of sit downs and, and Q and A and, and, you know, understanding the, the mysteries of life. And I just probably didn't ask enough questions. Most things I've learned have been just as an adult and, you know, when you're now like, well, I have to work to, to provide for my family and I need to start asking some more questions or, you know, and I've been I think I've been blessed and fortunate, but I never felt um, I always felt like it was it, it was actually a, the, the best thing that could have ever happened to our family. I don't think that life would have been so good if we had gone if it had never happened and we went back and lived because of a lot of the things that were going on in the home that I would probably become aware of later in life. But for us, you know, it's like our mom kind of was our personal savior in a way that, that removed us from a really, that was going to become a very potentially, you know, dangerous um, living environment and really provided us an opportunity to thrive in life through other means. Um, so I've, I've just, I don't hold any resentment. It's it's made me into who I am and the way I look at things and, and the work ethic that I was able to, um, you know, um, develop at a young age. And I'm not really quite sure if I would be nearly the same person I am now had it never happened. Yeah. What impact did your full-time mission have on you? Because uh, 
I, I want to say too, if unless you've served one like the kind that we did, you know, you just don't know. Looking for the people like friends of mine, they don't really know really what it was like. It's you know, it's hard work. It's really hard. It's very rewarding. There are ups and downs, and but, but I know that you were a very good missionary. You're very effective. I know you worked your butt off, and you also were in the Spanish speaking program too. So that's that's not easy. I mean, I, I was English speaking guy. But what did that affect, or what did that kind of have on you as well? The effects and help you grow and that kind of thing. Yeah, I actually shared this once in a job interview. It gave me a glimpse of the talents and skills that I had that it would probably take several years before I could really um, show them like, you know, within an employment, like as a manager, for example. Right. It takes a while when you start out in your career to ultimately become a team leader or a manager uh, of people and, and things like that. So a mission in, a, in addition to just the the kind of ecclesiastical side and. And the things that we would do from a religious perspective with people we encountered, there was all the benefit to just what it was doing to you as an individual. And I, I felt like I was it gave me a glimpse that um, uh, that I would be a good teacher, that I could, um, I, you know, I could be a good speaker in, in public speaking. I could be a good leader. We would, you know, as far as the people that I had responsibility for, I could I was I could be a good manager. So it just it, it it provided an opportunity even before I only had one semester of college under my belt at that point. And but it really allowed me to have confidence in myself so that when I did come home and I did go to college and, and you know, finish up my degree and, and work, I knew that there were skills that that were there that, that it kind of helped me a little bit with my path and my profession. But it, I also knew that that ultimately I had I had talents and skills and abilities that I probably would not have developed uh, at all, or at least um, had any insight had I not served a mission. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's well said. I agree with that 100. percent I like I went to an interview once and um, they asked me like, what's one of the hardest things you've ever done? You know, kind of in your career. And I was like, let me take you back to something I did as a missionary where we actually, you know, did a boundary change and provided a boundary change for creating another mission and all this data that we had to collect and, and figure out the um, and we had to forecast, you know, so it was kind of this first opportunity to forecast what something would look like based on past data, you know, the, the trends that we figured we were getting missionaries wise. And then ultimately, how do you draw the line across a whole city? on which should be considered like the North and South mission. I just thought that was a great case study of things that would go on in any business. Yeah. Right. As you, as you try to develop what's, what's what one region over another. And, um, and I shared that experience and then the lady was like, wow, that's, that's interesting. How old were you? I was like, yeah, I was like 21. <laughs> Unfortunately, so your dad died recently, I believe in April. Yeah. What kind of um, emotions or memories or kind of uh, reflections has that you know drawn out of you these last few months? You know, if anything, I just feel bad and I feel sorry for him that for 40 years he didn't really get a chance to, you know, be himself. You know, he's kind of trapped, you know, um, in his body and he was a very funny guy and. He um, 
I think he would wake up at 4 a.m. He lived, he was in, uh, in like a, it's called the Orem Rehab Center there in Utah. Um, kind of a place, I wouldn't say it's, it's probably the one step before hospice for most patients that were there, or just lived there in kind of a hospital setting. But he would get up at four and wanted to be the first in the hallway to, to wave to people and, and greet them. And, and I just feel, I just feel bad, right? For when these things happen to people and, and they just, and it was more of his life as a handicapped person than than he wasn't. Um, and those are some of the emotions. But I'm also now, you know, I believe that he is, um, you know, free from that and and um, doesn't have those impairments anymore. You know, so I'm I'm more joyful that that he's out of that situation. Um, but I never, you know, I never really knew him as a father, so I don't have any of those memories or things that I, I think upon, I've just known him as a, you know, as a, someone who over time, it just got, you got a little bit more debilitating, harder to understand. Uh, it, you know, got to a point where he was in a wheelchair and, and then it got to a point where he didn't know who I was. Um, for anybody that's, that has someone in their family that has Alzheimer's or, you know, that's basically what happens where they, they're talking to you, but they have no idea who you are. Um, so if anything, it's just maybe maybe a little bit of, um, lot, you know, just the, well, oh, what could have been, right? And just to be able to interact with him um, and and talk with him and, and have a little bit of that, that father-son relationship. How do you think your, your life, your early life and your mission, how did that prepare you, you know, for the – to be – you know, in the leadership positions that you have been in the last several years? And how did it impact, like, how you interact with and manage, you know, people in your company? You know, somewhere along the way, I, I think certainly as a missionary, whether whether or not someone, you know, accepted our message, it taught me to genuinely care for every person I came in contact with. And I was genuinely interested in learning about that person. It's almost like doing an interview with just every single person, you know, what brought them to to Utah and tell me about your family. And, you know, if they I just and so that experience really set the stage for them becoming good manager later where you got to know your people, you know, or as a or as a good father. Right. To know your you know your children. Um, but I've always my success a lot has just been in truly people uh, recognizing that I, I truly care for their welfare, which then helps you as a leader to to lead people and to get more out of them or to get more, you know, more level of commitment. And, and they enjoy their job when they know they have a manager that that truly um, cares for for their well-being. And, um, you know, I think that's something that that has just um, stuck with me. And it doesn't matter what what I'm doing. That same principle applies. It could be a team of three or it could be a, a program I just left with 160 plus. But I knew every one of their names and um, probably had a lot of information and facts because I just cared. And I know that that I know that people will respond to that. They will respond to know when when someone truly cares about them. And so um, and I think that really started just knocking doors and um and meeting complete strangers and then hopefully those turned those turned into friendships 
and just or otherwise just a level of respect. And and that I feel like that has that has paid huge dividends how I approach uh, the work I do. And now here in Huntsville, you know, to truly care about those people that now are in my new community. What advice would you give people moving to a new area, new city, new state, you know, new town, whatever it may be? Just get involved. You know, it. Um, I, I, it's funny. I was actually just thinking about this the other day. I haven't necessarily taken the step yet where I've gotten to know all of my neighbors. But certainly when it comes to from a business perspective, you get involved with the Chamber of Commerce. If depending on what industry you're in, if your company doesn't yet belong to the association, then get them to belong to the association. You start going to the events. I just came back from an event um, before talking with you. And those are things that have to become top of mind where it's it's extending yourself beyond just the, you know, your primary function um, of, of your job to say, what is it that I can do? What is it I can attend? Is there a board I can be on a committee? You know, I'm picking up pickleball now. I want to start playing pickleball. <laughs> just you just get involved and it, you have to extend yourself a little bit. Yeah. And it just and then it just makes life that much more enjoyable. And I think in Huntsville, it's nice because it doesn't take us long to get from one side of the town to the other. And there is so much to enjoy. But, you know, I think it's just just get involved. And um, and people are they're so nice here. And they and it's just such a, a, a community feel. And I would do the same thing in any other part of the country. But I do think there is something a little extra special about Huntsville. Well, I've always said that if I moved somewhere, especially outside of the SEC, outside of Southeastern Conference area, I would I would get, you know, a clock or something, you know, for one of the teams of that area and, and support and take on that team. Now, if I moved, you know, to Tennessee or something, I don't think I would get a Tennessee and start becoming a Tennessee fan. But, but you know what I mean when you move a little ways away. Yeah. But you, I've said this before, Troy, and I know you've talked about it a little bit on your podcast, but you have done what very few people do, and you've really embraced the area. And for me, you know, I went to school at the University of Alabama, and we had a lot of people. Uh, mostly this was through church because Alabama has or at least had a very, very high-ranking law school. And so people came in from, from all over the country. And I just remember so many people, and it may have been their spouse as well, they just did not like it. They were coming from somewhere, you know, a thousand, you know, 2000 miles away. And it was a big change because there was a culture difference and humidity difference, maybe. And uh, yeah. I just remember I always I just kind of got tired of people bashing it, you know, because I understand you don't have to like it. But I started I kind of got defensive in my head. And so when when you when I met people who just embraced it, whether they were going to stay or not, if they just took it all in while they were there, made the most of it while they were there. I just always made note of that and really appreciated that. Yeah, I agree. There's, you know, the fact is we can all be um, have pride in where we come from. But the reality is the whole world can't live in someone's awesome city. You know, so as much as I love the Rocky Mountains and I love the beaches of Florida and, you know, that doesn't mean that that's the end all be all. And there's sometimes that's that attitude that prevails with people. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I always hated it when someone from the West Coast came out and would would make fun of the mountains in the east. And it's like, well, 
But here's the thing. I can still ride my snowboard better in your mountains than you can. So, you know, <laughs> the good thing about the East, they may be smaller, but you're going to learn how to be a better snowboarder or skier because we have some ice. We we deal with much more difficult conditions. But, you know, it's it's just people's human nature. Yeah, yeah, certainly. You may be the biggest Trash Pandas fan there is in town. I, I tell you, man, there's there's something there's so many things I love about the pandas, and I've never had never went to a minor league game in my life, and I am now like I'm a huge fan. I was actually at the game last night. Um, <laughs> it's just because I mean I love sports, but it's just like the amphitheater that opened up. We like live entertainment. We like live music. We like live sports, and when you have that eight minutes from your house. It's kind of hard to turn that down and it's not, you know, it's pretty cheap. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just, it's a good time. And, uh, they, you know, at the good quality baseball, I mean, they're only a phone call away from the majors. That's right. That's people. These are professional athletes. There's just not enough, you know, roster spots in the majors. Otherwise most of them could be on on the major league roster. All right. So before we wrap it up, Troy, is there, what else do you want to cover? What have we missed that you wanted to talk about? Oh, man, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Folks, look up Our Town Podcast. I'll have a link in the show notes, but I, I encourage you to subscribe. Subscribe and download every episode. You know, Listen to them as they come out. You can watch his, whereas you can't really watch mine. You can only listen, but Troy has audio and video available. I wanted to ask you just a few questions, Troy, in closing. Sure. So, banana pudding, hot or cold? Yes. Oh, I love it. Hot oh, or cold? Oh, oh. Oh, I like it. Let's see. Probably cold. Have you ever had it hot? I don't think I ever had it hot. <laughs> Probably not. Is that, is that an Alabama thing? I don't think so. It's an option. I don't think it's not as popular. I, it may be a very uh, even a real old or maybe even like super rural area hot banana mm-hmm. pudding. But, you know, I, I mean, I'm a cold guy, too, but I have had hot and it's it can be very good as well. I was uh, I think I was at. Brewster's the other day and one of their flavors I think was southern banana pudding like ice cream I'm like oh my goodness what about ma'am and sir did was that where you're from you know I, I realized that growing up I thought Virginia was the south and maybe parts of it is but but I know oh, it's, it's, south. Our, what's it's south of the Dixon line it is it is that's right of course the DC area is a whole different world but is is sir and ma'am is that in where you're from is that considered disrespectful or is it respectful or is it just not even used. Oh, definitely respectful, but not used um, as much as, you know, the I would say you get to North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, you know, misses the true south, if you will. Virginia is kind of a maybe they forget they're in the south. I think uh, they it, it's, it's definitely respectful. It's not like it's, it's not. I say it a lot, sir, ma'am, just to be. But uh, but certainly not as common. I okay. think you get I think you get down in in Alabama and 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 Georgia and it's you know you know that those kids have been raised to say sir or ma'am. What are some foods that you've had here that are unique that you really loved and also that maybe you just did not like at all? Well, there's nothing I don't like. I don't think I've come across anything I don't like. One thing that we do like is fried uh, fried green tomatoes, and mm-hmm. that's that's something we've carried down from Virginia. So we're on this quest. Anytime we go to a restaurant and it's on the menu, we're going to order it as an appetizer. Okay. And it is interesting how that varies. 
I love the fact that there's more pimento cheese. And, you know, it's big in the South. Um, I don't know if I've come across anything that I've not ever had. Um, and I certainly haven't come across anything I, I don't like. <laughs> and I, I just haven't been here long enough, Dad, to build up a to build up enough of an arsenal of, like, you know, experiences. Yeah, and I'm not good enough yet to, like, show you all these different places because I'm still new enough to the area where I don't know all the good local foods. Yeah, but I have started experimenting to create my own Alabama white sauce. Yeah, which I which I love and you know put on anything, but I'm still trying to get the amount of vinegar right and that type of thing. Yeah, well, I'd like to try that. I, I love white sauce. Do, are you a biscuits and gravy man? Yes, my wife actually excels at biscuits and gravy. Okay. Right, yes, from scratch, like she'll make her own you know gravy and all that. You know, growing up, I, I didn't realize that you could make all these things from scratch because everything came from a box. And and she, like, makes gravy. I'm like, you can make gravy or you can make syrup? Like, whoa, <laughs> this is amazing. You're like, I thought literally that just was something you buy. All right, Troy. Well, thanks for joining us tonight on Patriot of the Core. Anything in closing? You know, I may not be your, your typical guest, but um, as far as like, you know, ties in the military, but um, I we just our company just gave fifteen thousand dollars to still serving veterans over 50 percent of our twelve thousand employees were are veterans. Um, and so there's a, definitely a special place in my heart for for those who serve, have served. My grandpa served in World War Two. And, you know, I, I have a lot of pride in that. I, I've never really got to hear his stories, but um you know, I thank you for doing your podcast and being able to honor your your brother's life and, and, and memory of him. And, and it's been nice to get to know those friends and family, um, you know, and and their experiences they had with Mark. So keep it up, Dad. Yeah, appreciate it. And I hope you can join us next year again for the walk. We'll, we'll be back in Haleville like we usually are. And we should have a good group and even have more more people that served with Mark and, and other military as well. And then some of those faithful folks that always come out. So I hope you can join us. I'll be there. All right. Thanks, Troy.